Joel chapter 1, verse 14. Our Lord says this through the prophet Joel. Announce a sacred fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the residents of the land at the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Let's pray once again. Lord, we approach you now as your people. We are assembled before you as your people across the world are assembled on this day to give you glory and give you honor, to listen to your word and to hear you speak as you are enthroned above, yet dwelling in our midst, dwelling amongst us, in us. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand further the nature of repentance, what it means for us as a people who are saved, what it means for the world, and how we are to rightly relate to you, Lord. Pray, God, that you would open the eyes of our heart. We might be able to behold Christ in the word this morning and behold your grace and see your transforming word take root in our life. I pray, God, that we would not be hearers only, but that we would be doers of the word. Lord, may we not just come here to hear a lecture or to hear a cool talk, God, but may we come to hear you speak so that we may be changed. Have your will in that way, Father. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please be seated. The sermon is titled, Humanity's Sorrow, The Tears of Judah. This is part two of a sermon on repentance. This is further titled, Corporate Repentance. Corporate Repentance. A couple years ago, I got to serve as the jury foreman in a court case involving a social worker who was suing San Bernardino Bernardino County for wrongful termination. The social worker uh, had outstanding reviews for his whole career, year after year, an excellent worker. Over time, though, he uncovered the fact that the county had been placing foster care kids in abusive homes due to some software issues in the county that didn't properly cross-check names of known abusers. And so during this court case, we saw pictures of abused children, we saw a dead child, and much more than we had anticipated. The social worker reported uh, this mistake of placing people, placing children into abusive homes. He reported it to the appropriate people. And over time, he began to acquire negative reviews and evaluations as he pushed for this to be rectified. And eventually he was terminated. And so he was suing the county, the county that we live in, for retaliation. Once all the evidence was brought forth and all the witnesses and other social workers were questioned, we were able to see clearly that the county, his bosses, and its workers indeed retaliated against this social worker, and they wrongfully terminated him as a whistleblower. It cost him a lot of money and lost wages. A lot of stress was brought onto him, and thus he developed medical issues. Then it endangered his future in regards to work. In fact, working in another county would be very difficult. As a group, the county had failed, and they, as a group, needed to make amends. While he was asking for a lot more, the jury collectively agreed that he should be awarded $2.5 million to account for past lost wages, to cover the cost of his health issues, 
his attorney fees, to cover the cost of him as he, uh, uh, of his livelihood as he transitioned from no longer being uh, able to work at the county into starting his own practice. And so we gave him enough to account for all of that. We actually denied him the larger amount that he was originally asking for because we didn't feel he was entitled to be paid up until the time that he could retire. We just thought that was in excess. But we calculated all that together and we ordered, uh, awarded him what we felt was fair compensation. It was a, almost a two-week case for us to get through, and it was a heavy case as we had to see all this evidence that led to his whistleblowing and wrongful termination. And for us, of course, it was sickening to hear of children being hurt and abused and killed. It was terrible to hear of a man being fired for caring enough to blow the whistle on a county that had failed these kids. And the small part that we had in at least helping him brought him some solace, and at least we got to help make some crooked things straightened out even though we could not fix everything. I can tell you that the county workers that were involved in his wrongful termination expressed no corporate or collective repentance or sorrow. And that is precisely the opposite of the spiritual mindset and demeanor that the church is supposed to have when we are corporately or guilty of sin. This morning I want to tease out this notion a little bit further in our sermon, this notion of corporate repentance, group repentance. While Joel deals with the old covenant people of Israel, uh, the old people, Old Testament people of God, and he's dealing with their national repentance, their cor- corporate repentance, I want to explore this idea a little bit further in regards to God's new covenant people, that is the church, us. I want to see if corporate repentance is something that is ever required of a people, not just individuals. Now, one thing I've learned in Scripture is that while the Old Testament is fulfilled, and as Hebrew says, it's obsolete, and while we're in the New Covenant, there are many, many, many parallels that are different. There are parallels that are, aren't quite exactly the same, but you can see how they run across a similar plane. And they have their ties in the New Testament. Some of the things that we do in the New Testament have their ties to conceptual practices taking from the Old Covenant. For example, take tithing, for example. It's an Old Covenant law to help support the priesthood. But in the New Covenant, it's not a law. But we do see generous giving in order to support those who devote their lives to preaching the gospel and serving God's covenant people, just like the priest did in the Old Testament. Parallel, but different. Not not on the same plane, but a different plane, but they kind of run similar to each other. Okay. Well, is corporate repentance one of those parallel, but not totally identical practices? That's what I want to visit this morning. Not just general repentance, but corporate repentance. As we discussed last time from Joel, the notion of repentance for God's old covenant people required everything from their attire to dress in sackcloth, to their behavior, they were to weep and to mourn and to cry out, but also to their contemplation, to their thinking. They were to dwell over the things that they had done wrong against God and dwell about their covenant relationship with God. And then we looked to the New Testament and we saw the story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells. And we saw that repentance contains serious consideration, that this guy thought about the situation he had been in and he he realized his life was a wreck. He realized his wrongs against God and others. But it also involved this repentance, a willingness to accept the consequences of his sin 
and even making at least some sort of reparations where it was possible. And so we looked at complete repentance last time, while today we're going to look at corporate repentance. But you have to know that oftentimes sin is like scrambled eggs, in that you can't unscramble the wrongs that you have done. Not everything can always be mended up. Not everything can be repaired. Not every wrong can be made right, even as we saw from the prodigal son. If you recall, the prodigal son was not able to undo his wicked living and his wicked spending, but he was able to mend up his relationship with his father by grace and the love that the father had in him, by him going to the father. So reparations, again, were not made financially, but relationships were repaired. Now, when we think of the act of repentance, it is often thought of as something that I do or something that you do. What I mean is that it's often thought of as something done by an individual. Would you agree with me that that's pretty much how we think of repentance? I have to repent. You have to repent. It's not often thought of as a we thing or an us thing. If I steal from someone, I should repent and make reparations, not you. If you spread division, you should repent and make reparations, not me. And some of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, involved just that. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. In Exodus 22.4, uh, we see that the thief, uh, a thief was to pay double the amount for an animal that he stole. And so that was part of his repentance and making things right, his fine. Right? That was the reparation part of his hopeful repentance as this sinner would participate in atonement sacrifices and sin offerings. And so he would do these other things, but civilly he had to make things right, and then spiritually he had to do things to be right with God. But we often think of sins as only individualistic, because that is probably where most of our sin is committed. Of course, there are sins that people commit in tandem, sins like adultery. Yet even in those cases, we often think of repentance in terms of the individuals involved. Each person must repent of their own sin. But what are we to make of the idea of corporate repentance? Is it biblical? If it is biblical, how far do we take it? If it's not, then what do we make of passages like we see in our text today? Is there a time for God's people to collectively repent, or is all repentance just individual? To be certain, corporate repentance is not something that we often talk about. Am I right? Raise your hand if you've, maybe you have. I know I've heard a couple, but it's not frequent. Raise your hand if you've ever heard a sermon on corporate repentance. Interesting. Okay. You actually have. You just may not have known it. Okay. For now, let's try to save any conclusions or applications that we might want to jump to. All right. Let's make sure that we understand our text today. Let's make sure that we understand what God is saying to Judah through Joel. And let's figure out how this is applicable to us and see if there's anything in the New Testament that would help us to see this notion of corporate repentance. Now, this might be one of those sermons that you think might not apply to us now. And if so, that's okay. You know how when teenagers hear sermons on marriage and they're not married? Is it good for them to hear that? Yes, because they're going to need it at some time, right? Sulema and Aaron, when they heard me preaching through Malachi, they got a couple of marriage sermons in there. We all did, and they probably have them memorized, right? No? Okay. Either way, they heard things that they would need for later. So, too, this sermon might be like that, where we need to tuck away what God is teaching us now for later. But it might apply now. Let's wait and see, okay? 
So let's not dismiss the content of the sermon just because we may not think that we need it now. Not everything we hear in the Word is meant for now. Sometimes it's meant for later. Let's let's visit another book of the Bible for just a second because I want you to understand Old Testament corporate repentance a little more. If you recall, when we went through Malachi, spent a long time in that book, we saw that God was addressing Israel as a covenant nation. Of course, there are times in there when God was addressing particular people, particular groups, all right? But as a whole, he was talking to Israel collectively because collectively or corporately, they had broken covenant with God. So collectively, they were to repent even if not 100% of the people were guilty. And even if there was a faithful remnant, which there was, In fact, the very first verse of Malachi says that that entire prophecy was to Israel, not to an individual, not to a select group of people, but them as a nation. And then we covered six different disputes that God had with Israel and with the priests. Of course, as I said earlier, there was always a faithful remnant that was faithful to God. It was never true that 100% of the people were guilty of breaking covenant with God. We read about the faithful, but nevertheless, that did not stop God from issuing a corporate injunction to repent. It's pretty obvious that the majority had betrayed God through various sins. But rather than address the majority only, God decided to address everyone since, number one, it would serve as a warning to the faithful. If everyone was addressed, all the sinners, the majority, the faithful would hear a warning in there for them not to apostatize. Number two, it would serve as an address uh, to all the sinful covenant breakers in the land so that no one would be excluded. They would all hear the same message. Three, it would address the leaders who failed to lead God's people into faithfulness and who themselves were faithless. Four, why did God do it this way? Well, God could always single out the faithful remnant like he did in Malachi chapter 3 and show that they were not like the faithless ones. So it wouldn't hurt anything to address everybody if he could show that there was still a faithful remnant. And number five, it would serve in some way as a guideline for what corporate repentance would look like in the life of the church, the New Testament covenant people of God. Let me address a little bit more of this call to repentance in Malachi because that is how it ends, okay? And then we explode in the New Testament with that hanging in a to-be-continued sense, okay? Let me address Malachi from that perspective. If you recall with me, the prophet Malachi, as he's closing his letter, he foretold of a messenger with a capital M, a big M messenger of the covenant that would come to visit the second temple. In both judgment, this messenger would come, and in salvation, this messenger would come. He would come in condemnation, and he would come in restoration. This capital M messenger of the covenant who was coming to the temple in Israel was God himself. And later we see that it was Jesus in the flesh who came to the second temple and pronounced judgment on it, even as he began his salvific work. And scripture says in Malachi, who can endure this day of the Lord? That's what the prophet asks. Well, it would be those who repented and who would be saved and who would continue, uh, not continue in sin, but those who did continue in sin would be damned. Prior to that coming visitation of the Lord, 
Malachi also says that there's another messenger, a lowercase m, who is coming to prepare the way for the capital case M, the big M, all right? Little messenger preparing the way for God. That other messenger we now know was John the Baptist. And in Malachi, it refers to him as Elijah. And so John the Baptist bursts on the scene roughly 400 years after Malachi, uh, Malachi's message to God's people to repent. And here's what John the Baptist says. He picks up where Malachi leaves off. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. And that's from Matthew chapter uh, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. So John is crying out this message to repent. Who was John speaking to? He's picking up where Malachi left off. The messenger, capital M, of the covenant has not come yet. And he's preparing the way for Jesus to arrive. Who is he speaking to? He was speaking to corporate Israel at that time. To the Judeans or to the people of Judah, not just individuals. At that time, uh, at the time of John the Baptist, Judea was a Roman province. And it covered more than the land of Judah of Israel. But nevertheless, John is addressing the same national people who Malachi prophesied would receive a messenger, lowercase m, who would prepare the way for the messenger, capital M, of the covenant, which was God himself, Jesus. So John uh, the Baptist is speaking to Judah collectively, and his injunction from God is the same as Malachi. Repent. There's a kingdom at hand, which means there's a king in charge. And you are citizens of this kingdom, okay? Repent. It's God. And so collectively, as a covenant people, they had not listened to Malachi's warning for some four centuries prior. God has been quiet for 400 years, and the message they now heard from John the Baptist should have jarred them and at least made them sit up and think, is this this the one that Malachi was speaking of that would prepare the way for the messenger of the Lord, for for the angel of the Lord? Indeed, some Jews like the Sanhedrin, that was the equivalent of the U.S. Supreme Court in their day, right? The Jewish Sanhedrin, they sent priests and they sent Levites to interrogate John the Baptist because he was gaining a following. And of course, his message of repentance included everybody, including the leaders. And so that would likely become a threat to them and to those in power. John denies that he is the Christ. And they ask him if he's the messenger of Malachi, that is to say, Elijah. And so they recognized his message that it was very similar to what Malachi was saying. Right? But the message of John, my point is this, was for the nation of Israel to repent and to turn back to the Lord, corporate. Their king was about to burst on the scene. And Joel issues the same injunction as well. And again, it's corporate. It's for Judah. And so let's look at this corporate call to repentance. Last time, we, again, we took at the nature of complete repentance and what biblical and complete repentance looks like. So today we build on that sermon and we look at corporate repentance. And the overall point of today's passage, at least in regards to Judah, is that Judah's repentance must be corporate. It must not just be complete in an individual level, but corporate. Let me reread the scripture this morning. Announce a sacred fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the residents of the land at the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So the first 
command that we see, all right, from God through Joel to the priests, because that's where it's being addressed right now, is that there was required a sacred fast, and they were to announce that. A sacred fast was to be announced. Now, Judah had just undergone a visitation of God's judgment. We don't know the nature of their sin, but it led to God bringing a curse upon their land in the form of a massive locust invasion. God promised to bless them in Deuteronomy. If they remained faithful to him and in Deuteronomy, he also promised to bring various curses upon their land if they turned away from him and corporately, corporately violated covenant with him. And so whatever the sin may be, it's evident that God's sanctions are now upon Israel, upon Judah. And they were to make sure that future generations knew about God's displeasure. The nation was called to awaken from their torpidity, their spiritual and mental sluggishness, and they were to assess their situation and see what was really going on. The devastation was so great, the invasion so great, that they could not participate in offerings of thanksgiving to God. They would bring grain offerings and drink offerings to God from their harvest to say, thank you, Lord, for blessing me. And God could not do that. They could not do that for God, to God, because God was not blessing them. He was cursing them. And so their worship is now messed up. They should be able to, if they take the time to stop and think and wake up from their torpidity, to see that they are not in right relationship with God. They could show no gratitude to God for his provisions because God took them all away because of all their uh, breaking covenant with him and their sin. And so when you understand God's purpose for the nation of Israel, you understand that they were God intended to bless them so that they would be a blessing to the world. All right? That blessing flows from God to them, to us. We ultimately know that comes in Christ. But nevertheless, here they are being cursed. And so the question should we be, should be thinking is, if they're being cursed and not blessed, how are we going to receive a blessing if they're under God's curse? So it's, it's all tied together, but nevertheless, God is faithful, and God's going to do what he's going to do, and uh, he's going to fix things. We see all that, and God's going to fix them in himself because Israel continues to be faithless. And so uh, with their worship rituals dashed to pieces, with their relationship with God in shambles, they were all called to repent, that is to weep, to wail, and to be ashamed. They were to feel sadness and sorrow, and we'll soon see that we'll soon see in Joel that God desires to restore Israel, to restore what the invasion of the locusts took away, but not under just any conditions. They must repent. Then last sermon we saw that God called the priests, if you recall that sermon. He called the priest to dress in a way, in, in clothing that showed inward repentance and sorrow and sackcloth. They were to contemplate at length through the night, thinking about their situation and circumstances so that it would, they wouldn't just act out the part in dress, act out repentance, but rather they would truly be sorrowful towards God and over their sin, which would be evidenced by their internal meditation their emotional sadness, and appropriate humble attire before the Lord. Today, we see that that repentance goes even further than just the acts of the priests. They were to announce a sacred fast. Now, that word announce is not entirely fitting. The, the word means to make holy or to sanctify or to consecrate. To make holy, 
to sanctify or to consecrate. In other words, God wants them to take the act of fasting and to not use it for health reasons, rather use it for holy, spiritual, and religious reasons. Take this fasting time and dedicate it for the purpose of repenting to God. Set it apart from other types of fasting and use it to get right with God. Use it for prayer. Use it to express sorrow to God for the wrongs you have done. Use it to examine your heart and to search out God's word and think about your actions and your thoughts and your motives and meditate upon your course of life. Meditate upon why the destruction has come to your land. Use it to think about all these things. Remember the covenant that God has made with you and the blessings and the cursings that are there. Use it to think about the devastation and what you did to incur God's anger. Stop eating and do these things instead with this fast. Make this fast sacred. So what did fasting look like in the Bible? In Ezra 10, verse 6, we see that Ezra abstained from food and drink. So see, abstaining from food and drink, but he did so because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles. Because of those that came out of Babylon after 70 years of captivity They were continuing to be unfaithful after God graciously blessed them with freedom and allowing them to return to their homeland. In that fasting, he was mourning. And so fasting is the abstaining from solid food and or drink for a period of time to mourn and to express sadness before God. God. And in this case, it was sadness over sin, their sin. Let me just say, so you don't try to walk out of here fasting for five days without water, all right, you can only survive three days without water. So if you're going to do a drink fast to express repentance before the Lord, be careful on the time frame and try to stay hydrated. All right, you can go for a short time, but I, you don't want to do it for long. In Psalm thirty-five, thirteen, we see that David fasted, fasted in order to humble himself before the Lord. In Daniel nine, which we're going to look at a little bit later, we see the. Uh, Daniel seeking the Lord with prayers and with requests by fasting in sackcloth and ashes. In Samuel 2, uh, 2, chapter 12, we see David fasting again because the prophet Nathan announced that David's son would die because of his sin with Bathsheba. And so David refuses to eat anything He's lying on the ground and pleading with God to spare the life of his child. He is emotionally and spiritually wrecked before God, but knows that God can be gracious and merciful. And so that is what he is praying for. Yet the baby dies seven days after it was born. In Esther 3, there's a law that was passed in the Persian Empire in which all Jews were to be exterminated. When Mordecai heard about it, we see in chapter 4 that he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes. He went into the middle of the city and he wept bitterly. And the Jewish people throughout the various provinces, they fasted and they wept and they lamented as they laid in sackcloth and ashes. And so what we find in the Old Testament in regards to fasting is that it was primarily an abstaining from food, sometimes liquids, for the purpose of humbling oneself before God to pray, to mourn, to plead for God's help, to express sadness and sorrow, and to lament and to wail before God, either over a dire circumstance that has just happened, 
one that will possibly happen, or perhaps to do all those things because of some national sin and seeking God's forgiveness. In the case of Joel, a terrible thing has happened. Crops have been devastated. Worship rituals are shut down. Fasting before God was necessary because, one, a dire circumstance had happened. Two, national sin had been committed. Three, an even more dire event is on the horizon, something called the day of the Lord. So they are praying because of what was, what is, and what is to come. Thus the priests, they were to lead Israel or Judah in a fast that is set apart unto the Lord to weep and to wail, to cry unto God, to confess sin, contemplate their circumstances in hopes that God would further relent judgment and restore former blessings. Do you get that picture so far? You with me what's going on here? This fast had to be consecrated. It wasn't for health reasons, to lose weight, to heighten intellectual alertness, or to detoxify, or to fit into that summer bathing suit. Right, men? Because we care about that. This fast was for spiritual purposes. We see the first command. We see the second command. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Proclaim a solemn assembly. We see that in the next portion of the verse. It says, announce a sacred fast. Next, proclaim a solemn assembly. And then we see it says, gather all the elders and all the residents of the land at the house of the Lord your God. Not only was there to be a fast, which was consecrated for holy purposes, but there was to be a corporate solemn assembly. This assembly was for sacred purposes. It was also to be set apart for God. It's not a celebration right now. It's not a sporting event. Those are assemblies. It's not a town hall meeting. Those are assemblies. It was an assembly of the nation before God at God's palace. So we are witnessing this corporate call to repentance. It is to be done in solidarity. The priests were to proclaim that the solemn, uh, that the, uh, solemn assembly was for the whole nation. And they were to contemplate what they had done before the Lord. They were to be consumed with the displeasure of God. They were to think about an appropriate response to a holy and righteous God. This assembly would remind them that they all together had sinned. As a unit, as a whole, they have failed to keep the covenant of God. And that's why Joel tells the priests to gather the elders, that is the older folks, and all the inhabitants of the land, the inhabitants of the land, the inhabitants that God created from, from Abraham, the land that God gave them and took away from the Canaanites. All the inhabitants of the land. Gather them together. But it was to be at a specific location. Not just anywhere. It was to be at the temple. That is the house of the Lord your God. The temple is where the Lord dwelt amongst Israel on earth. On earth. It was the king's palace. So gathering here would remind them who they stood before as a people. And so... you. In your mind's eye, get that image. There is a temple with the Holy of Holies in the heart of it. God separated from everyone else because of their sin. And the entire nation is to gather together and stand before the Lord. It would remind them that Yahweh was their God. And that they are separated from Him, His presence. And they can only draw nearer to Him through sacrifice. This temple was pivotal in their life and their relationship with God. It was God's house, his earthly home. Yet they stood outside of it and were not welcome in it. Why? Because of sin. 
And even priests who served in it could only draw so near to God and not all the way. And only the high priests could draw the nearest to God and only on one day of the year. So the people, young and old, even the priesthood, were really quartered off from the Holy One, but that's where they were to gather and assemble from the one who they could not approach completely. So this assembling before God's house would remind them where they stood with God as sinners and how through sacrifice they could draw nearer to God, yet not completely. Picture with me again, a sinful nation assembled before a holy God who is separated. Picture the solemnness of that assembly. They stand there united. In what way? As criminals before God. In rank and file, as violators of God's covenant, as rebels to their maker. It's like they've been brought before court, before a judge. They're self-serving, defiant people who have been judged and found guilty. What a sight it would have been to behold this gathering. Let me say right now that there's no physical temple where God dwells, where God's people can gather in the new covenant, okay? While there's similarity in the new covenant, there is distinction between the old and the new covenant, but there are some parallels. Right now, the temple exists, but it is not a physical building made of bricks or stones. It is a physical hyphen spiritual building made up of people across the planet who have repented and confessed Christ as their king and savior. We are believers. We are that temple. And right now, the temple is assembled stone upon stone across this planet on the Lord's day. Okay, That is us, the universal church. And we express this unity by gathering together in local assemblies that we call the local church. We are the temple. And unlike the old covenant temple where Israel stood separated from God due to sin, we stand together as the living temple. And where does God dwell? In us. We are not separated from him. We can boldly enter God's presence. We are priests who can come all the way to God because of what Christ has done for us. And so each Sunday we gather together and we are unified once again, okay? But we are not outside of God's presence because of sin, but because of Christ and his taking our sin away, we can be united to God. This building that you sit in is not a temple. This building that you are under with a roof is not a sanctuary. The sanctuary was the old covenant, temple, tabernacle at times, we are that sanctuary now. We are that temple, okay? This building does not define us. It's important only insofar as God's people assemble here to hear from God. It, it, all it is is a meeting place, but God dwells in us as the temple. It does not exist as an end to itself, right? Some pastors, some church members think the end all is to build big buildings as monuments as to what God can do. That's just trash theology if you don't know it already. That kind of stuff needs to be repented of. We don't exist to hold this building up. It serves us. We don't serve it. We are the temple. God dwells with us, in us, his new covenant people. And when we gather every Sunday, we are gathering for many reasons. 
one of them, which is to remind us that God dwells in us and we are his people. Sinners saved by grace. As priests, as kingdom citizens, we stand before God, but we are united to God, unseparated from God. This is the most important part of our week. It is who we are. You are collectively God's home on earth, all throughout this planet. This is a powerful moment. It's a sacred moment, a sacred and solemn assembly. But for some, for some people, this is just an option when it should serve as a weekly gathering with God our Father. Let me just say that we so often focus on individual salvation that we forget that God is saving a people for himself. And that these saved people are not just in covenant with God, but they are in covenant with each other. We are in covenant with each other. You with me, me with you, you with the person next to you and behind you and in front of you, if you are a Christian. Okay? We throw around the phrase personal Savior, and that's not found anywhere in Scripture. He's really a corporate Savior. You find that all the time in Scripture, that he is saving a people for himself. He has saved you, but you are not saved in a vacuum. He has saved us. So let me just say that we should stop speaking of Christ as my personal Savior, and I think it would be healthier for us to start speaking of Christ as our corporate Savior. He has saved us. He has saved us. It will shape your identity when you realize he's saving a covenant people, and you will begin to realize that you are not entitled to live alone or isolated as a Christian. You have a duty and a privilege. Indeed, it should be a joy to be with God's people. Our union with God unites us to each other. Christ is the head, and we are the body. He is the cornerstone, and we are living stones of the temple of God. And Israel had solemn assemblies. And our corporate Sunday mornings are our solemn assemblies. They matter. Our weekly assemblies are times to confess sin and to receive God's grace by reminders of the gospel and as we take communion. As one of the elders of the church, I proclaim that Sunday is our solemn assembly. It has been announced. Do you hear that? It has been announced that this is our day to gather. It ought to be the premier event that you look forward to and make time for each week. It is the Lord's Day that reminds us that Christ was judged for our sins and that he rose again victoriously to vindicate who he was and to remind us that we are justified by trusting in him and putting our faith in him. His resurrection proves that he is the righteous one. So this is our day. Last night as I was going over this sermon one last time, I had this epiphany. And we're talking about our corporate repentance, or we will shortly. But I began to think of all the covenant breakers of the Old Testament, how they were outside of the temple, standing before a holy God, breaking covenant with God. And as the church, as we gather across the world, we are united in our Sunday mornings. And there is a people group outside of this temple being identified now as violators of God's law. So get that image in the Old Testament. Israel standing outside of the temple. This is the temple right now. Who stands outside of us? The world. Do you you see why it is necessary for God's people to gather every Sunday? It shows the rest of the world that they are outside of the family of God and under the judgment of God. You cannot take your gathering on Sunday mornings lightly. And as I was thinking about that, I'm like, what? That's 
That's an amazing task that God has given us. And if you decide that Sunday morning isn't important to you, you're in essence marking yourself as an unbeliever. If you don't want to gather with the temple of God and be a part of this spiritual, physical building us, the people of God, you're saying, I'm on the outside. Don't be marked as that. If you are God's people, assemble. You understand that? It serves as a witness to the, to the world that they are not in the family of God, and it serves as a rebuke to them. Just like Israel's assembly before God served as a rebuke to them. It's essential. It's part of kingdom work. It's not just coming, you're not just coming to hear a, a guy talk or just to sing cool songs. It, it, it serves as an evangelism uh, factor in, in what we do for the kingdom of God. So we see Israel was to participate in a sacred fast, to participate in a sacred assembly, and then they are to corporately cry out to God. That is our third point this morning. There's to be a solemn noise exuded from them. That is, they are to cry out to God. Lastly, we see in the sacred assembly that Joel wants the whole nation to do this in repentance and sorrow. God had been calling them to wake up from their torpidity and to weep over their sin, and now they are to cry out to God in sorrow, cry out to God for mercy, cry out to God for restoration, and cry out for forgiveness, cry out in confession as one people unified. There are some people that say that the Old Testament informs how we should read the New Testament. And then you have those at the other end of the spectrum that say, no, 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 the New Testament informs our understanding of the Old Testament. And then there are whack jobs like me who believe that both Old Testament and New Testament help each other understand both of them. Okay? You can't understand much of the New Testament without the Old, and you can't get everything that God wants you to know about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament without the help of the New. You need them both. We need both to understand both. And we saw that there were many ways in Malachi when we were in that book. That's the Old Testament. It helps us understand the church life, what church life was supposed to be like in the New Testament. It helped us. And in using our cues from the New Testament, we were able to see Christ in the Old Testament. And so we went back and forth using both Testaments to help each other, knowing that we are in the New Covenant. And I think the corporate nature of repentance is in few full view, not only in Malachi, and we ne never actually really addressed it, because the, in any given book, you can, you can preach five times as many sermons to try to cover everything. And so we really, we really never address corporate nature, but as we are in Joel, we see it, and so we're taking the time to do that today, corporate repentance. We can see now how this old covenant principle is going to transfer over to God's new covenant people. Before we get to that, I want to quickly look at Daniel chapter 9. You can look there in your Bibles if you have that, please. Um, I believe it's on the screen too. Daniel chapter 9, verses 3 through 6. In there, we see a righteous Daniel, right? We know, I mean, Daniel's a great guy, right? Like, we could all aspire to be like him, even though he wasn't perfect and a sinner, uh, just like all of us, but uh, one of the awesome believers in the old testament but we see him in this chapter confessing the sins of the nation and he lumps himself in the group even though he was radically faithful to god that's it's almost like what is he doing he's doing something that's biblical right verse three says this so i turned my attention to the lord god to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting sackcloth and ashes and i prayed to the lord my god and confessed, Ah, Lord, 
the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, leaders, and ancestors, and all the people of the land. We have sinned. We have not listened. I bring up this passage because it helps us to see the notion that even though you may not be guilty of a particular sin, our church could be. And even though you might not be guilty, you can still be included in corporate repentance that is necessary. I do understand that this is a very foreign concept uh, to us since we tend to individualize everything in our country. But like Daniel, you can express sorrow and sadness and include yourself in the collective unit of the church and identify as one who has done wrong even if you haven't done wrong. Daniel's we is not an I in the sense that he sinned. We as a nation. And that is very much what he is part of, a covenant people. We are guilty, even if I am not. I am in that we, though. And you are in the we of the people of God. It'd be like if my family did wrong to another family. And then I approach that other family and I'm, I say, I'm sorry that we wronged you. Even if I personally didn't do the wrong, I still identify myself with the corporate family unit. And I include myself in this wrongdoing as a member of the family. If you lie to someone and apologize, you don't say, my tongue is sorry, do you? You say, I am sorry. If you steal and make amends with someone, you don't say, my stupid hand is sorry for wronging you. But the rest of me did no wrong. Don't hate my face because my hand took from you. You recognize instinctively that one member of your body is united to the rest of the body, so there is a sense in which the part of you that did wrong, all of you did wrong. Okay, That's how we are united to each other. We are members of one body, but also of one local body, not just collectively around the world, but locally. So we can collectively sin, and thus we may need to collectively repent, even if not every member committed the same sin. Absurd, you say. I thought that too. Until I remembered the first few chapters of Revelation. And I saw that Jesus called several churches to repent as a whole. And that's why I said we have heard sermons on corporate repentance. We just may not have remembered. It's likely that the majority or even the supermajority were guilty of those sins that are called out. Even if not 100% of the people were guilty. And yet the church as a whole needed to repent. Let's look briefly at those churches and see what sins they were guilty of because these are sins that we can be guilty of. We might not be, but let's at least look at some things that can be corporately repented of. We're going to fly through these, okay? And you're welcome to go back and listen to Pastor Steve's sermon on these churches that needed to repent. Now, although these were real churches, again, that needed to repent, it could be that we're guilty of similar things, all right? It'll open our eyes, I think. We see the church in Ephesus. They needed to repent of not loving properly. They needed to repent of not loving properly. Whatever or whoever it was that they loved at first, they had forsaken it, and the Lord called them to repent. 
Maybe it was their love for Christ. Maybe it was their love for the church. Maybe they had, uh, whatever it was, love for the word, they needed to repent for misplaced devotions and affections. So, do we love people like we should? Do we love lost people like we should? Do we love others in the church like we should? Do we love the Lord like we should? Or do we love temporal things more than eternal things? Do we love our comfort and self over others and the Lord? Do we need to repent as a whole? Have we corporately sinned against the Lord like the church in Ephesus? If so, we need to repent like Jesus commanded the Ephesian church. The church in Pergamum, they needed to repent of pagan and sinful practices. This church held to the teachings of Balaam and, uh, and the Nicolaitans. In the Old Testament, Balaam was a wicked prophet. He advised a Moabite king, an enemy king of Israel, and he, he advised him to entice Israel to marry pagan women, which would ultimately lead to the Israelites committing idolatry and turning away from the Lord. The Nicolaitans mentioned here are those that held to this teaching that freedom in Christ means you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. In other words, the grace of God is now a, a license, uh, a get-out-of-jail-free card. You can do whatever you want. You're good. It's a license to sin. And so here you have this church in Pergamum engaging in pagan practices, engaging in sexual immorality, and using grace as a license to sin. So are, is this something that we need to repent of? Do we on a corporate scale engage in pagan practices? Are we reading horoscopes or speaking of karma? Do we talk about the universe as if it's an entity that is alive uh, in, a, in a thinking sense, all right, where uh, we are thinking that it controls our destiny? Are we pagan in our practices? Do we on a corporate scale engage in sexual immorality, whether it's fornication or pornography, using sex to manipulate and punish our spouses by withholding it, lusting or adultery? Do we use the grace of God as a license to sin? I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want. I'm saved. All my sin is forgiven. So what's one more sin? I'll just go ahead and do it. Do we need to repent of these mentalities and these actions? What about the church in Thyatira? They needed to repent of tolerating sexual immorality. This church was guilty of following a self-professed prophetess into pagan practices and sexual immorality. She refused to repent, the church, or this lady. She refused to repent, even, the Lord, even though the Lord gave her time to repent of her perversion. Jesus called the church to repent because they were following her teaching and example, and they needed to stop all that. Is that us? Are we following false teachers in immorality? I don't know about you, but aren't you tired of hearing of all the celebrity pastors who fail on a massive scales and their churches who continue to follow them even after all the scandals they commit? Doesn't it get old hearing that in the news? So-and-so pastor was abusing these people. Or it, it just You get sick of it. Those pastors in those churches, they bring shame to the name of Christ. There are churches out there that need to repent of this. Is there anything in our church that would match the church in Thyatira's sin? If so, we need to repent. The Lord Jesus called the church in Sardis to repent. They were to repent of half-hearted service to him. 
If you don't want to be offended, please walk out here in just a second, okay? If you don't want your toes stepped on, because some of us are going to fall into this category here. Here we see that the church was to repent, even though not every single member was guilty of sin. Nevertheless, the church was to repent. And the Lord recognized in this church that there was a faithful remnant. What was the entire church to repent of? They were to repent of having incomplete works. Incomplete works in their deeds for the Lord. They looked alive but were dead. Wake up and stop being torpid is basically what the Lord is trying to get them to do. Mediocre was the adjective to describe their service to the Lord. They needed to strengthen what little life they had in them and they needed to repent. So let me ask you some questions. If, the, if it applies to you, just wear the shoe humbly. If it doesn't, then it doesn't apply to you. When was the last time you served the church? When was the last time you were regularly involved in the good works that we're trying to do here? How can one say that Jesus is their Lord if you don't serve your king? I'm not referring to our guests. I'm not referring to visitors. I'm not referring to unbelievers, but our members and our regular attenders. There are things that even attenders can do if they're not a member. You are served week in and week out, but do you serve? Are your works evident to you and your family? Is your church being blessed by God in you, by the Holy Spirit and the gifts that he disperses amongst his people and the talents, whether they're spiritual or natural, that he gives you? Is your church being blessed? Is the world being blessed? If not, you need to repent. I've heard this stat since since I can remember, at least since I started pastoring in 1996, it is said that the typical church has 20% running the entire ministries at a church. 20% of the people doing the majority of the work. I found an article from 2011 that briefly stated the same thing. So even recently, I guess in the past decade, stats are still showing the same thing. If that statistic is correct, then the church at large needs to repent. If I were to lay out a list of all the members and regular attenders, and we just began to go by name by name, because I'm trying to make it personal. And please understand, whenever we preach, we want to preach with, with the intent of Scripture. If a, if a passage is meant to encourage, we want to encourage. If it's meant to call sinners to account, that's what we want to do. So while I don't know everybody's situation, everybody's heart, the message of Joel is we got to repent as a group, right? The New Testament, so we're going to talk that way whether it applies or not. But if we were to lay out a list of all members and attenders and we begin with the A's and go all the way to the Z's and, list, and we got to your name, what would the Lord see? Because he sees it now. In your service, is it mediocre to him? And you have to stand up and say, this is where I serve Sovereign Way Christian Church. This is where I serve my body. I am the hand, and this is how I help the other hand. I am the hand, this is how I help the stomach and the foot and the toes and the eyes and the ears. This is how I help the rest of my, my body. What would you say? You might have excuses like, I work a lot. I have kids. I have this reason or that reason. Listen, don't care what I think. I, I'm nobody. You should care what the Lord thinks. You cannot fool him. You cannot fool God. Let's stop with petty excuses. 
That is not saying that you need to be involved in 10 ministries. There are people here that are involved in five to six things at the church, and it can be exhausting for him, them or him or her because there are other people in the church that don't do anything. Can you say that you truly love us if that's the case, that you love God as the head of this church? That's meant to sting. Why? Because there are times when the church needs to repent. This isn't just empty theology. This isn't just empty talk. This isn't just for you to come and think and go home and, wow, another great sermon. I was moved, but I wasn't moved well enough to do anything. I wasn't moved well enough to actually repent. Great idea. No, God calls us to repent. Does does that hurt you at all? Does that grieve you before God? Thank God we're in the temple and that we are not separated from God as those on the outside look and see themselves condemned before a holy God. But if the Lord has saved us and drawn us near to him, why would we not serve him than the rest of his people as he instructs us to. There are commands over and over in scripture of things that we are supposed to do for one another. That is a huge part of the Christian life. Stop petty excuses and do something. Do more than what you're doing now if you're doing nothing. And if you're doing a lot, God bless you. Get some rest every once in a while. I need it, you need it. Don't burn yourself out. Let people know when you need help. We see the church in Laodicea, the last church that was called to repent. They were to repent of mediocrity and a love for health and wealth. This church got caught up in the comforts of life and wealth. Comforts and pleasure consumed them so much so that they became mediocre in their works for the Lord. I'll tell you what, you don't have to be rich to fall into this trap. As Americans, we are pretty wealthy compared to the rest of the world. Even if we might live well below the standard of a lot of people in this country, we are still very wealthy compared to others. The American dream has become the American nightmare for God's church in this country. Let me say that again. The American dream has become the American nightmare for God's church in this country. Wealth and comfort of the American dream consumes so many of us that it makes for a stale church because we're out there pursuing our kingdoms instead of pursuing the Lord's. Do we need to repent as a whole? Do we need to repent of this sin? Are we zealous and filled with zeal for God as we should be, as much as we should be? And as I read the New Testament and I see God's new covenant people, I can't help but see the corporate repentance is very much a part of the church life. The New Testament letters call churches to proper belief and proper living, which means more often than not that wrong belief and wrong living were being engaged in or those letters wouldn't have needed to be written. Those letters serve as corrective measures to get the church back in line with new covenant living and new covenant thinking. They are addressed to whole congregations, not individuals. Even letters written to pastors or even letters written like Philemon were meant for the church at large so that the church would know how to function under leaderships. Uh, leadership of pastors, or to have better relationships in the church. They were meant for the entire congregation. They are addressed to God's people as a whole because they, as God's people as a whole, they need to repent and they need to engage in righteous living and loving. So repentance is not just for you. Repentance is not just for me. It is for us. Church, our Lord died and rose for us. 
Let us be repenting. And as I survey the landscape of American Christianity, I can see that the church has caved. The church at large has caved to societal, cultural, and political pressure. Many of us have friends that practice immoral sexual living, and we endorse it, and we give approval under the guise of love. And that needs to be repented of without hating people or wishing them to hell or being ugly towards them. Loving others doesn't mean approving of sinning against God. Churches at large do not spread the gospel like they should. Ask yourself when the last time was that you shared the gospel with someone. Churches at large do not serve like they should. Where are you serving God's people and the unsaved? Churches at large do not worship the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. I commend you this morning for your singing. It was rich and hearty, whether the songs were newer to you or very well known by you. I can tell you, when I looked out at the first song, there was a lot of dudes not singing anything. And my heart was crushed because we just heard the word of the gods from Psalm 29 saying that that the Lord is worthy of glory. And we were summoned by his word to worship him. And people want to stand there tight-lipped. Even if you don't know the song, say the words. God's worthy of your confession, even if you don't got the melody down. Thankfully, though, more people began to participate. We are assembled before the Lord to worship, and the church at large needs to get rid of this mentality that only good people can sing, and only stars can sing, and I don't have a great voice. Put aside that pride and humble yourself before the Lord and say, God, I can't help but praise you. Why is our Savior not our premier affection? Churches at large follow selfish, self-indulging leaders just like some of the churches in the Revelation. And they refuse to be discerning and firm in their requirements of godly leaders. Those churches need to repent. Church, let us not be stiff-necked. Let us not shake our fists at God in defiance of him. My instinct tells me that there are things that we need to corporately confess to God. That's my instinct. My instinct also tells me that many of us here will leave no different than we came here today and that we will not heed this message. I hate having that instinct. I don't, I just, I just know people in general. And that's what happens week after week with most churches. They hear it and they leave and they do nothing. I wish my instinct were, were more optimistic that God's people are always in, in repenting and doing what they want. But I know, I know American churches. Don't do that today, please. I urge you to hear the word of the Lord. Don't leave having not confessed sin and and then changing what God wants you to change. I pray that I'm wrong. I want to be wrong. I don't want to be right, knowing that people left here unchanged. But I know the hardness of hearts. I pray for a church that is sensitive to God. I pray that we repent. How we need to recognize who we stand before right now. We stand before the risen Lord who dwells in the temple. Let us remember that we are saved by God. Christ was crucified and buried and risen again so that we might not have to spend forever in hell 
but we can approach God daily, and one day we'll approach him face to face. So let us continually be turning from sin like we did the day that we were saved. If you are not a Christian, you must repent. You must believe that Jesus died for your sins. You must believe that he rose again to unite you to God. That is whom you have been rebelling against. In repentance, that is who you are turning to. But you must believe that Christ came and died and rose again to save sinners. So put your faith in him to save you. He will save you from the wrath to come if you repent of your sin and if you put faith in Jesus Christ. And he will unite you to his people, to his living temple, where God will dwell in you as he dwells in us. And you will have a family that will love you imperfectly at times. Nevertheless, you have a family, and you can help us get better by serving the Lord. Amen? Let us repent, church. Let us pray now as we prepare for communion. Heavenly Father, we bless your name.